ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. What do you think was the biggest failings of insurance companies through that event? I think the biggest thing that we could control in, the, in that uh, is in the communication. And, 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 and what I mean by communication, uh, regular updates, meaningful updates uh, with people and helping set expectations with what would happen next and when it would happen. The final public hearing of an inquiry into the insurance industry's response to the 2022 floods has been held. Today, major insurers have given evidence. Shortly, we'll hear what they've had to say. And about 4,000 kids from remote Australia rely on boarding schools, but fees are climbing and affected families are asking for some relief. The federal government has offered a new scholarship, but for just a fraction of students. We're not asking for a full free ride to an exclusive inner Sydney boys school or anything like that. We're just asking for support to help us send our kids to boarding school. I'm Alex Simon and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wadjuk Country, Perth. Today, a federal parliamentary inquiry looking into how insurance companies responded to the major East Coast floods of 2022 held its final public hearing. Last week, consumer groups slammed the insurance industry during the first public hearing, describing the behaviour of some assessors and third-party contractors responding to the flood disaster as appalling and highlighted cases of delayed processing of claims, rude and aggressive behaviour, poor repairs and underinsurance. Compounding the stress and anxiety and anxiety flood victims were already feeling. Earlier this week, the Insurance Council of Australia told the inquiry it's not proud to hear how policyholders were treated in the wake of the catastrophic floods. The council's chief executive, Andrew Hall, told the hearing he's sorry the industry has let down customers. It's embarrassing, isn't it? It's not a good look for the industry. It's shameful, isn't it? Why can't you say it? Why can't you say it for what it is? Shameful. Well, if it makes you happy, I'll say we are not proud of it and, it, and those stories uh, don't bring great glory to our industry. For today's final hearing, it was the insurance industry again giving evidence. Our reporter on the Coffs Coast in New South Wales, Charles Rushforth, has been following the inquiry. Charles, who from the industry spoke today? Hi, so we had two um, very different insurance companies speaking today. The Royal Automobile Club of Queensland, RACQ, um, an insurance provider who also does roadside assistance and banking, um, and Allianz, a global insurance company. Um, There were two very different hearings today, all talking about their responses to the major floods in 2022 across areas like southeast Queensland, northern New South Wales, the Hunter and Greater Sydney, um, as well as the central west of New South Wales and Victoria. So how did they respond to the criticism of the industry heard through this inquiry? Yeah, so there was a lot of crossover in terms of the things that the chair was flagging as um, issues with the insurance um, industry. Both insurers today flagged that communication to customers was a huge issue in the disaster. So instances of customers having to repeat their stories over and over again throughout the claims process to new people um, at different points of the process, as well as automated messages being used to update customers on the claims process, so like an automated messaging system there. Also, um, the use of and, and quality control of third-party 
third-party contractors, um, which insurance companies used extensively to respond to claims in the 2022 floods. That's things like um, third-party electricians, um, engineers to do reports as part of that claims. Now, some of the most spectacular spectacular evidence came in between um, the Allianz Managing Director, Richard Feedley, and the MP for Kalar, um, Andrew G. Um, Mr. G raised that during the devastating floods of Ugaura, third-party contractors used by Allianz used some pretty dodgy practices. This is where it relates to um, the Foreman family. Take a listen. Mr. Foreman was asked to sign what we now know to be a waiver document, and he was only given the back page of that document to sign, wasn't he? Yes. And so the document, your your agents procured his signature to a document without not only without explaining the terms, you didn't even show him the terms. Yes. And then they proceeded to do the strip out in excess of what was required. That's right, isn't it? Yes. And you sent Mr. Foreman back a version of that authority to proceed, which was actually not the version which your agent had on the day. And until you got a letter from me, you were going to leave Mr Foreman with the excessive costs of repairing uh, the excessive strip out, weren't you? No, Mr G, it was already within the system being reviewed. There's no excuse for it having to come to your office or to my office, but it it had already been raised. That's the Managing Director of Allianz, um, Richard Felidi, and the MP for Calaire, Andrew G. there. Pretty spectacular stuff. And there was also a back and forth between Andrew G. and Allianz over hydrologists. Uh, this has been a huge topic um, across this debate. Um, insurance companies basically use a hydrologist to determine whether water damage is due to flood water or tidal or um, ravine waters, um, all of which it might sound super um, specific, but it can actually have a massive ramification depending on your coverage on whether it's technically flood damage or stormwater damage. Uh, they use hydrologists to basically ascertain um, what that, the source of that water is. Now, the issue that Mr G raised with Allianz is that the customers weren't getting their own independent hydrologist reports when deciding their claims due to the fact that there's a scant amount of them available due to the massive scale of the 2022 floods, as well as the cost to actually engage one of these hydrologists independently. Now, this meant that people were usually stuck with the hydrologist report they'd received from the insurance company. Uh, And Andrew G, um, he said that this made and potentially might have skewed some of the results from these reports. Can you tell me where in this report there is any mention of these experts being independent or owing a duty of independence? Can you can you tell me where in a hydrology report like this I would find that? No. Because they don't exist, do they, in insurers' hydrology reports? There, is, there doesn't have to There's... be any declaration of independence? No. There's no declaration that I'm aware of in a hydrology report. And there's no code of conduct that a hydrologist needs to abide by in a preparation of a report like this, is there? Uh, Not to my knowledge. That's Allianz Managing Director Richard Felidi and the MP for Claire Andrew G again there. And just finally, Charles, could this result in industry-wide change? Will the parliamentary inquiry be making recommendations to improve the way insurers respond to these larger-scale events? Yeah, that's right. And that full report is um, due to be handed down on the 30th, the 30th of September this year. But I think it's been interesting. There's already some, suge- some suggestions that have come up. Um, the chair has flagged that there's very little information about the customer experience across insurance company. Um, he pushed for a public ranking of um, things like claim times and success 
price rates across the major insurance companies to sort of have a bit of a publicly available ranking list that you could compare when considering which insurance company you wanted to go for. Um, mandatory flood and storm coverage was another suggestion, but it's a hotly debated one too. Um, this would mean that instead of needing... Um, you know, a, a report from a hydrologist to determine whether you, um, you were covered in the event of a flood or a storm. You'd just be automatically covered. But it would mean that people in areas that are particularly flood prone might be stuck with really high premiums due to the fact that they couldn't opt out of those services and it may, potentially might not even be able to afford insurance at all. Um, so it will be interesting to see which ones of these crystallise in the coming months. Charles Rushforth is our reporter on the Coffs Coast. Charles, thanks so much for speaking to Australia Wide. My pleasure. You're listening to Australia Wide on ABC Radio. And staying with the response to the 2022 floods, the New South Wales Premier says a land announcement for the flood-affected north coast of the state offers hope. The state government is signing a Memorandum of Understanding with the Southern Cross University to provide land for 400 new homes to be built. It will see 72 hectares of university land in East Lismore be made available for housing and is expected to be ready for market by 2026. The $100 million land release will prioritise people affected by the floods of early 2022. Here's New South Wales Premier Chris Minns. This is not the final destination. It doesn't make Lismore whole. Nobody here is suggesting that the job is done, but we did want to come back with the progress report about ensuring that local communities know that there is opportunity and there is hope for communities that were smashed as a result of those terrible floods. In response, local federal MP Kevin Hogan says the Resilient Lands Program has been too slow for those who endured the natural disaster. This is great that this is 400 new homes for families, but the related respect to the disaster is a furphy because who's going to wait for four years to move into a house if they've been flood affected? This has been far too slow to be relevant to those who are flood affected. That's the federal member for PAGE, Kevin Hogan. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. About 4,000 kids from remote Australia rely on boarding schools to finish their education. But even at more affordable schools, boarding fees are climbing. The federal government has offered a new scholarship to help, but only for a fraction of students from remote parts of the country. Stephen Schubert from the ABC's specialist reporting team has this story from Lambina Station. This is the last leg of a long trip for 13-year-old Steve Fennell. He's just had an almost 900-kilometre bus ride from boarding school and is now being driven up his family's 64-kilometre-long driveway off the Udundatta track to their home at Lamina Station in South Australia's far north. Starting at boarding school, it's a very different change from going from living on a station to living like more in the city. There's lots of new people like sport. I've never played sport until this year. It was very big. While the tuition fees at his regional Catholic school are modest, Steve's mother Gillian says the cost of boarding has grown significantly. It's a massive financial pressure um, because apart from the school fees, you've also got the associated costs of the travel, which is extensive. The kids boarding school is 900 kilometres away and it's not in a major centre, so we can't fly the kids back and forth. We have to drive there and pick them up and bring them home again at the start and end of every term. Then you have other things like uniforms and and sporting equipment and all these sorts of things that you're happy to pay for because you, you want to give your kids the best opportunity that you can in life. And on top of the school fees, paying all these extra things, it, it's, it's a real struggle sometimes. 
Data collected by the Isolated Children's Parents Association shows the average cost of boarding school has been growing over the last decade. 19% in New South Wales, 22 in Queensland, 18 in Western Australia and 74% in the Northern Territory. To help, the federal government provides an allowance called Assistance for Isolated Children. To be eligible, families must live more than 56 kilometres from their nearest government school. The allowance increases in line with inflation. This year it's worth almost $10,000, but it hasn't kept up with the rapid raise in boarding costs. When it was introduced in 1975, it covered 55% of average boarding costs. In 2015, that slipped to between 39 and 55%, depending on the state, but now it covers between 33 and 44% of average boarding fees. The Isolated Children's Parents Association says the average out-of-pocket costs for remote families is now $20,000 every year for every kid in boarding school. Here's Gillian Fennell again. But we live in Australia and everyone here is entitled to a decent education regardless of where they live. And it's, we're not asking for a, a full free ride to an exclusive inner Sydney boys school or anything like that. We're just asking for support to help us send our kids to boarding school. We're more than prepared to pay for it. But the assistance offered by the government hasn't kept pace with inflation or cost increases or anything like that. As well as Steve, the family have an elder son who finished school last year. Their youngest is daughter Eleanor. She still attends School of the Air, learning remotely from home. She'll start boarding in four years. I do want to go to boarding school so I can meet new people. Most of them will be my age. It feels a little bit scary as well. To help, the federal government has introduced a new scholarship worth up to $20,000 a year. But there's only 100 of them, 30 of which are specifically for Indigenous kids from the Kimberley and Cape York. 4,000 children from remote Australia rely on boarding schools. And for kids like Steve Fennell, there were only 70 scholarships available. He applied, but missed out. I don't necessarily think it's quite fair how they're only given out 70, because there's heaps of bush kids that might want it and might need it a lot more than me and other people that might have gotten it. But they just didn't get it. The Isolated Children's Parents Association wants an increase to the boarding allowance that all eligible students can access, which they say would cost $16 million a year. Its president, Louise Martin, lives on a cattle station near Tambo in central Queensland. Her twin daughters have just finished high school last year. She says it's more than primary producers who rely on boarding schools. Essential workers who come to our rural and remote communities, such as nurses, policemen, teachers, once their children get to the age of high school, they usually pack up and leave because sending their children away to school is unaffordable. So the best thing for them to do is leave um, so they can access secondary education. In a statement, Assistant Minister for Education Anthony Chisholm said there were 353 applications for the scholarship program, which is in its pilot phase. He said the government will consider additional places in future years. Stephen Schubert with that report. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. You are listening to Australia Wide with me, Alex Hyman. It's great to have your company. Remember, you can podcast the show or listen back to the program through the ABC Listen app or by visiting the Australia Wide website, just search for ABC Australia Wide. 
Every day is different at the Clermont Hospital, from man-versus-bull incidents, snake bites and goat attacks. But now there's one thing that will remain the same. For years, the shortage of health workers in rural areas has meant a central Queensland community of about 3,000 people relied on visiting doctors for their care. But they wanted a long-term solution, so they rallied together to attract a permanent doctor to the hospital. And they've succeeded. Abby Halter has this story. Dr Tim Lane is a popular person in the rural town of Clermont right now. Residents have been anxiously waiting for someone like him to move in for about six years. He's the new permanent general practitioner at the local hospital and is no stranger to rural medicine. I have this lovely 60-year-old lady um, come into the hospital um, holding her under her arm. And she said she was hit by her bull, pulled it up, and it was just an arterial spray just spraying everywhere. Um, And there was a massive hole going in, so the bull horn had gone in and punctured her lungs. Um, She was bleeding arterially, um, and, you know, blood pressure was dropping quite rapidly. Um, And that's just the type of person that country people are. You know, she walked in um, under no complaints, no thoughts that it would be that bad. Lermont is a small, tight-knit town. So how has he found settling in? The community have been um, ultra-welcoming. Um, so walking down the street, everyone was lovely, introducing themselves, saying hi. So um, you don't get that often in places you go, so you could tell that they've been looking forward to having another doctor. Um, so my partner, Fred, he is a nurse um, as well, obviously primary care at the moment. Um, our little boy, Dominic, um, is 13 months old. Uh, He was born a little bit early at 26 weeks. Um, So at the moment, Fred is full-time carer for him. Um, But yeah, we've we've loved and we've settled right into the community really easily. Even though he loves rural medicine, Dr. Tim understands why it's far easier to attract medical staff to jobs in the city. Rural GPs are really hard because there's minimal incentives to come out. Most GPs are either... Um, wanting a family orientated, so there's minimal schooling, and they think schooling in the big cities is better. Um, most of the pay-wise, you get the same rebates from Medicare, whether you're city, rural, or not. Um, rural is generally a poorer socioeconomic, so it's hard to privately bill rurally. Yeah, so at the moment, um, I take um, a number of days off per month, um, which are covered by a locum, um, and... Um, So that's my time off. The rest of the time I am on call 24-7. We do hope to recruit more doctors um, and to come in. So we've got a more structured um, uh, on-call roster. So ideally we'd have two more or a registrar and another doctor. Um, And then it will be four days on call and eight days off. Um, Support's really important in a rural community because you don't have those skill sets. You know, my skill sets are very much um, internal medicine or physician type of skill sets. Um, So there's gaps in, say, for example, obstetricians or um, gynecological work uh, that needs to be um, improved. Before Dr Tim arrived, Director of Nursing at Clermont Hospital Jan Falkenbridge was running the show, but she's very happy to hand over the reins. He's very good. So it's very nice to have someone finally so that we've got continuity for our elderly and continuity for all of our quality assurance and things like that throughout the hospital. So very good. The last permanent doctor we had was December 2018 when she left. 
um, and we've been running on locums ever since. Um, very difficult. Um, there's no continuity of care. They would come for two weeks, leave, they'd be a different person. You never knew the skill set of the people that were coming. So you'd get their resumes and book them in. Some of them didn't cope with the workload because they are on call for that whole time, um, which puts a huge workload on to our nurses um, to advocate for patients. Um, it's, yes, it's been a very difficult time. We do do Rescue Service Queensland and a thing called Temsu, where we can ring up and get a clinical nurse or get a doctor on the TV to talk to us and help us if because we have had short periods of time where we haven't had a doctor on site at all. Um, I say the nurses run the place anyway, so <laughs> but it's always nice to have a doctor on the floor. So it's been a lovely new change to finally get a permanent doctor here. Director of Nursing at Clermont Hospital, Jan Falkenbridge, ending that story from Abby Halter with additional reporting from Hannah Walsh. And finally here on Australia Wide, did you know that Western Australia is an important hub for a global network spotting the meteors flying over our planet? That role is set to be bolstered with 16 new cameras being installed across the state. These cameras send data to a group called the Global Meteor Network, who allow anyone from amateur scientists to NASA experts to access the information. Jamie Tanu reports. I'm watching a time lapse of the night sky on my computer, which was sent to me from the regional WA town of Kojanup. The sky darkens, clouds disappear, and suddenly white streaks of light begin rapidly flashing across the screen, like lasers in a scene from Star Wars. But this isn't science fiction. I'm able to do this because of a global science project that's keeping track of what's flying above our planet. Before these cameras, the, you know, the state of the art was just to go outside and observe meteors and just report how many you've seen in like a 10-minute block. On a typical night, about 50 shooting stars, aka meteors, can be seen, but you'll need a good eye and a lot of stamina to see them all. That's where the Global Meteor Network comes in. This is Dr. Dennis Vida, one of the heads of the network. So the Global Meteor Network uh, has over 1,000 media cameras in 45 countries around the globe, and the whole idea behind the network is to monitor meteor activity that's going on in the sky. The cameras send the data to the network, where it's accessible to anyone, from amateur astronomers to leading scientists, for everything from tracking crashed meteorites to assessing threats to the planet. We need to have these observations uh, to feed models that NASA uses um, that uh, estimate uh, impact risks of uh, meteoroids uh, to um, uh, satellites and astronauts uh, in orbit, and we need to make really good predictions. The cameras are relatively cheap and easy to set up. They basically look like CCTV cameras meaning it's pretty easy for anyone to get involved. This is one of the biggest citizen science projects in the world. This is Lexi Wallace from the Perth Observatory in Western Australia. WA has become a hub for the network. Our cameras pick up on about 5% of all the meteors the network spots, and we've helped discover new meteor showers. Now with funding from the state government, the observatory is building 16 new cameras across the state, bolstering WA's role in the network. These cameras are being placed in towns across WA, from Karatha up north to Denmark in the south. So I think that there's a great opportunity there for people to feel that they've actually been involved in that discovery. 
to say that, hey, my my town, my community has actually contributed to scientific research. The town of Kojanup, 250 kilometres southeast of Perth, will be hosting a camera at its community hub. Jill Watkin, manager of the Kodja Place, says she plans to put up a screen to display the footage captured by the camera so that locals and visitors can get an idea of the scientific work being done in their town. It means a huge amount to us and we're extremely excited about it because being a rural town, we often get overlooked for things like this in favour of cities. Ken Lawson, an amateur astronomer in Geraldton, took up the opportunity to get a camera at his house. Once he had one, he was hooked and decided to set up three more. Each morning, as soon as I wake up, the first thing I'm thinking about straight in my mind is, What did I get last night? And so I immediately have to load up all the cameras to see all the data that I got last night. And, you know, it's it's pretty cool when you get a big fireball. With plenty of clear night skies and a lot of curiosity, these keen volunteers and their cameras are doing an important job helping us find out what's up above. Jamie Tanu with that story. And if you're interested in installing your own camera or just seeing what's being spotted, you can find information on the Global Meteor Network's website. Just search for that through your search engine. And that is Australia Wide for this week. I'm Alex Hyman. I'll be back again with you on Monday. I look forward to your company then. Have a wonderful weekend. Cheerio. Listen.